Welcome to Vineyard 61's weekly podcast. We hope you'll be inspired, challenged, and encouraged by this week's speaker. For previous messages, go to our website, vineyard61.org, or subscribe via iTunes or SoundCloud. Good morning, V61. Oh, that was... I need to scrub Battersea were louder joke. That was actually quite good. Um, and good morning, uh, online and Battersea. Um, really, really great to be with you this morning. My name is Phil. Um, if you've not met me, then I particularly like Jaffa cakes. So feel free to add that to your gift lists. Um, I'm very excited. <laughs> Uh, to share with you this morning um, and to lead our worship through the Word. So if you have Bibles, please do get them out. Um, if you're taking notes, then please uh, do that as well. Uh, if you're reading on your phones, um, please put them onto uh, airplane mode because it interferes with me. <laughs> um, well, this morning we are uh, entering our teaching series into the Advent and the Christmas season. Um, and we're going to look at the topic, the very small, minor topic of God with us. Um, what does it mean that God is with us? How do we live the with God life? And this morning, I just want to start with a brief, brief pause um, before I jump in and just ask you the question and give you a moment to consider where is God to you right now? Perhaps he seems far, perhaps he seems close, perhaps he feels inside of you, perhaps he feels outside of you, perhaps you don't have a clue. All of those are okay. Whatever you're thinking, you're sensing, you're feeling from that question, I just encourage you as we teach through this morning and go into our ministry time as well, just be a little more aware of that this morning. And the reason I wanted to say it from the outset is that the idea that God is with us um, is such a fundamental core part of the Christian belief, indeed obviously Christmas time, that I think it's very, very easy to make it very impersonal. And yet nothing could be more personal. I think especially at Christmas it's very easy to think of God with us as a historical event rather than a day-to-day reality. So as I said, as we go through this and then we get into the word, I just encourage you to keep hold of that. Where, where does God actually feel to you right now? And again, if you're hearing this, maybe for the first time, maybe you're not in a Christian, you're totally welcome this morning, or you've been a Christian for many years, I just invite you to take this opportunity to re-engage with the truth and the reality that God is with us. Does that sound good? So we're going to look at three things this morning. Uh, We're going to look at the biblical revelation of the with God life. We're going to look at our battle to live the with God life. And finally, some practical ideas on how to live the with God life. So the with God life, biblical revelation. Um, As it's Christmas, I thought it's very appropriate to center our teaching in the book of Numbers. Um, So if you have your Bibles, please open Numbers chapter 2. I know Battersea are off the wall. They flip in love the book of Numbers. So um, I'm going to read the whole thing. I'll I'll truncate it slightly. Um, There will be a slide on the screen just to give you a picture uh, in your minds uh, of what's going on. 
Um, and you'll find it in the first half of your Bibles, in the old, what we call the Old Testament, what's sometimes called the Hebrew Scriptures. Um, and it's about the arrangement of the Israelite camp. So I'll, I'll read it for us now. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, The people of Israel shall camp each to his or her own standard with the banners of their father's houses. They shall camp facing the tent of meeting on every side. Those to camp on the east side toward the sunrise shall be the standard of the camp of Judah by their companies, the chief of the people of Judah being Nashim. His company is listed as 74,600. Those who camp next to him will be the tribe of Issachar, the chief of the people of Issachar being Nathaniel. This company is listed as 54,400. The tribe of Zebulun, the chief of Zebulun being Eliab, his company being 57,400. All of those listed as the camp of Judah by their companies were 186,400, and they shall set out first on the march, which is when they, when they leave camp. On the south side shall be the standard of the camp of Reuben, by their companies, the chief of the people of Reuben being Elazar, his company as listed being 46,500. And the camp next to him shall be the tribe of Simeon, the chief of the people being that person, Shemiel, his company being listed as 59,300. Then the tribe of Gad, the chief of the uh, people of Gad being Eliasaph, his company being listed as 45,650. All of those listed of the camp of Reuben by their companies will be 151,450, and they shall set out second. Then the tent of meeting shall be set out, with the camp of the Levites in the midst of the camps. And as they camp, so they shall set out each in position standard by standard. Now on the west side shall be the standard of the camp of Ephraim by their companies, the chief of the people of Ephraim being Elishama, his company being listed as 40,500. And next to him shall be the tribe of Manasseh, the, people, the chief of the people of Manasseh being Gamaliel, his company being listed as 30,200. We're getting there. Let's hang in there. Then the tribe of Benjamin the chief of the people of Benjamin being Abidan, his company as listed as 35,400. All of those listed in the camp of Ephraim by their companies were 108,100. They shall set out third of the march. Lastly, on the north side shall be the standard of the camp of Dan, the chief of the people of Dan being Ahaziah, his company is listed as 62,700. And those next to him shall be the tribe of Asher. The chief of the people of Asher shall be Pagiel, his company being as 41,500. Then the tribe of Naphtali, uh, his company being 53,400. All of those in the camp of Dan will be 157,600. They shall set out last, standard by standard. These are the people of Israel, as listed by their, their fathers' houses. All of those listed by their camps, by their companies, were 603,550. But the Levites were not listed among the people, as commanded by the Lord. Thus did the people of Israel, according to all that the Lord commanded Moses. So they camped by the standards, and they set out each to his plan, according to his father's house. Thank you very much. Now we're going to go to time of ministry. <laughs> <laughs> now, 
Now, I think we can be forgiven for reading all of that and not getting the chills down our spine. Um, what is the big deal? Why on earth read all of that? Why did God even give that instruction? Why was it recorded in this book of Numbers? And why am I therefore basing our teaching this morning on the notion of God with us around this scripture? Now, the answer lies in a really core practice of Bible study, which is just zooming out. This is a top, if you ever read the Bible and you're totally confused, which is most of the time, just the first thing you do, just take a step back. Say, what, what is even going on in this book, in this chapter, whatever it is. So we're going to do that briefly, and we're going to zoom out, and I'm going to place you in the context, us all in the context of the book of Numbers, and what's going on. It is the fourth book in, in the, of the Bible, in the first five books known as the Torah. It's the foundation of Jewish belief in the initial revelation of our God. Um, in the Jewish tradition, uh, it actually has a different name. It's not called the book of Numbers. It's often called the book of the wilderness. I don't know about you, if it was called the book of the wilderness might read it more often. So let me set the scene, but I'm going to do it slightly differently. I'm going to set the scene by giving you the first five books of the Bible in the form of a limerick. That's right, because who hasn't written a limerick on the first five books of the Bible? So I go. So I've got five, five, well, sorry, four verses. We'll go to numbers. Um, very abbreviated, completely theologically unverified. But here's a summary of the biblical story so far. Ready? There is a God who chose to create and tasked it to people to love and curate. But we wanted to own it, and therefore we've blown it, yet God said that won't be your fate. It's Genesis for you. Parts of it, anyway. Probably the first couple of chapters. Should probably get Abraham in there somewhere. Okay, then we go to Exodus, all right? We found ourselves in slaves, surrounded by sand, far from the hope of God's promised land. Through plagues in high doses, a sea and a Moses, God saved us and came close at hand. I like that one. That's a pretty good summary of Exodus, okay? Lidaviscus was hard, okay? But I'm happy with what I named, okay? In spite of God's love and his presence, we continued our self-sentence pretense. Give it me. So to guard from our flaws, God set down some laws and gave us a way to repentance. Okay, and now we're, thank you, now we're at uh, our numbers. We left for a promised land with plenty of, plenty of cheers, but wouldn't trust God averting our ears. And so what amounted, we also accounted, was a very long, long walk that took 40 years. <laughs> Are you with me? So that's the story of most of, slightly truncated, the first four books of the Bible. So we're now hitting the start of numbers, and what we've got here is they've come, uh, obviously through the creation story, they've come out of Egypt, they have the, the laws, the way God wants to live uh, righteously and in justice and with one another, being a model, and they're about to set out on the journey to the promised land, what God promised Abraham um, for, for his people to, to grow and be a model for all of us, um, and to start, start the, the faith that, that we live today. So it's a very significant moment, and Numbers 2, therefore, is the instructions of how God is saying, this is how we're going to start off the journey. And what's really important about this layer of context is this. The image on the screen and what we read is a literal representation of where, was God, where God was going to be in relation to their journey. I think in the next slide, I've given us a couple of subtle hints of what he was trying to say. 
I, I found this picture, and um, just the, the, the image of the guys on the, the right-hand side was just too good. But in all seriousness, I think this, we, we, we you know, and naturally, because of, uh, we don't often read this part of the Bible, we miss the profundity, profundity, profundity of the image uh, of what God's setting out here. This is a people who, at the moment, um, what they know about their God is he's incredibly powerful. They've seen him either firsthand or through one generation before take them out of Egypt with mighty power. They have the all tradition of the creation accounts. They know you have a creator God. And now this God tells them, we're going on a journey, and I'm going to tell you where I'm going to be. I'm not going to be detached from you. Um, I'm not going to be somewhere in a distance. I'm going to be right in the middle with you. And the other thing why I think we can be confident this is the purpose of this chapter is that there are 34 verses. Obviously, verses came after, but there are roughly four lengths 34 verses in this chapter. Um, there is one part that talks about the tent of meeting, which is where God's presence was. That's right in the middle there. That's verse 17. It's right in the middle. And I think, therefore, whoever wrote this was making the point that I'm writing all this detail, but the key center of this chapter is that I'm right in the middle of this. And this theme of God being with us is sketched throughout the entire biblical story. So if this is one of the starting points where God makes it really clear where he's going to be on the journey of redemption, we've got a whole load of more images. In 1 Kings 8, King David's son Solomon builds a temple, um, and in an amazing, uh, they dedicate the temple, and the Lord's presence fills it fully, Um, and it's overwhelming. And some of that was even the memories of this encampment set out. Then we move on to the prophet Isaiah, who at the time, if you read it, is quite mysterious, but he writes, the Lord will give you a sign. A virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us which the gospel writers then interpreted as this was Jesus coming into um, our world. We can also then see at Jesus' death, the gospel writers record that the moment he dies um, for our sins on the cross, the curtain which separated the temple, and again, we're coming all back to this image. This all comes back to where God set himself up in the center of the temple, so it's not a camp anymore, it's a temple. It was torn from top to bottom which means the removal of our sins allowed us an even closer full union with the with God life. And then lastly but not least is after Jesus was resurrected, his declaration that he must, he said he must bodily leave the earth so that he could send the Holy Spirit to indwell in us fully, to give us his power, his authority, and remind us of all the things he has taught us. And I think the key to this pattern of God with us is that it wasn't discovered by humans. It was fully revealed by God. And what I mean by that is God has done everything in his power, in his ability to communicate from literally how to set up an encampment to prophecies, to coming into the world to say, I am going to be with you, whether you like it or not, frankly. And obviously at Christmas time, we have that culmination, or one of the biggest culminations of coming into the earth in human form in the person of Jesus. It's what theologians call the incarnation. It's what I like to call God Konkani. It's a good one, that. 
<laughs> but I, I think we have to realize, um, we have to realize how stupid this sounds, okay? We're going to pause on this for a moment. I mean that word quite seriously. So one of the reasons when Jesus was, was in his bodily form on the earth, one of the reasons he was fully rejected as the Messiah is that it just didn't make any sense that God would come in human form. So the God of the Old Testament, which is the God of now, who was so powerful, who created, the Jewish leaders were like, it's actually offensive to suggest that that God would come into human form, to, to take on flesh. It was deeply offensive, and that's why this couldn't possibly be the promised Messiah. Mike last week had a really great metaphor, uh, talked about it was almost as if Shakespeare entered into one of his own plays. And I think that's a really great metaphor. Um, I think, uh, not to knock Mike's metaphor, but I almost, I feel like it needs to be more jarring than that. And this is going to sound a little random, but I'll, I'll roll with it. I was, I was preparing this, and I was like, it's almost like saying a human became a placemat. And that doesn't make any sense, but that's the point. Like, it's not just moving between a different plane. It's like, how can a God become in human form? It's supposed to be that jarring. But this is what God chose to do. Even as I said, the symbolism of the Israelite camp is a wonderful practical way how God has always intended to be with us throughout his redemptive plans. The beginning of John's gospel uh, makes this point poetically. We've actually read one verse from it. I'm going to read a couple of others um, just to, to, to keep showing how this is weaved through the entire Bible. So this is the start of John's account of Jesus' life. I'm going to read the first three and then verse 14. And I think there's another slide which, yeah, overlays it a little for you. And John writes this. This is thousands of years after this encampment um, was, was part of their history. And John writes, In the beginning was the Word, meaning Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him not anything that has been made was made. And then he keeps going, and he says this at the end in verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory Glory as the only Son of the Father, full of truth and grace. And the word John uses for dwelt there is the word to tabernacle. That is the tabernacle. So John and all the other biblical writers, they knew this was an ongoing theme. And to use a wonderful metaphor that the Bible Project used, he hyperlinks in Numbers 2. And everything after that about the tabernacle and where God was. And Jesus was literally that tabernacle coming into our lives again. Again, to paraphrase the Bible project, this just in, the entire Bible is a revelation of the God story leading to Jesus. How's that feel? I'm glad, Kristen. So, what does this mean then for our discipleship to Jesus on the 5th of December, 2021? So I've got some good news for you, and I've got some bad news for you. The bad news is from what I would say, 
there's probably been a never a harder time in history for us to actually attend to God's presence. And the good news, though, is that throughout history, Christians have done the hard yards to come up with really helpful, practical ways for us to overcome. So let me sketch out the two of them as we think about what this means for us. Um, a couple of years ago, I had a pretty difficult experience of life, and, and my mental health was, was pretty, pretty poor. Um, and I had the, the fortune and, and the, the, um, the, the opportunity to take some time away. And I went on a retreat um, for a few months, and we went to, to America. Um, and, the, you know, the plan was to do loads of time praying and journaling and, you know, really trying to find God and, and connect with what was going on in my life. And there was one really significant moment where, um, so at this point, I'd done everything to try and remove all the distractions of life. So, you know, my, my phone wasn't in the room. This sounds crazy, but that is, like, the biggest thing. Um, I was literally on the other side of the world. I was sat there on my own. And, and, but there was a TV in the room, and I knew it was connected to the internet. And I genuinely, like, you know, I was at rock bottom emotionally. I was desperate for God. The intention was there, but I felt the pull to turn it on and watch YouTube. <laughs> and in that moment, I was like, oh, gosh. Like, this is the biggest battle I have right now. I have become so addicted to stimulation that the biggest barrier is simply my obsession with attention, the things that want to, to grab my attention. And it was pretty profound, and, and you know, from that moment, there's lots of in, in between that gap, but I've been on a, an amazing journey through, through different means. But it was very profound, and zooming out slightly, um, I was doing a bit, a bit of research, and we live um, as, as a culture in, in Balham and Battersea, in South London in 2021, in what some people call the attention economy, which the most damning definition I heard, which is probably the best one, is people know that if they can grab your attention and hold your attention, then they can make money. Um, and therefore, in both in our digital space, but I think other areas of our life, everyone is really very good now at grabbing your attention, whether you want to give it to them or not, and holding on to it. And I don't think that's a new idea to a lot of us. Maybe it is uh, a new idea to some of us. But what I would think as I was reflecting on this is I don't think we realize how much of a barrier it is to being aware of God in our lives. Um, Sean Parker, I'm about to quote Sean Parker, um, Napster founder, president of Facebook, played by Justin Timberlake in the social media. <laughs> um, he, <laughs> he said this a few years ago. Um, he said... The thought process that went into building these applications, meaning kind of uh, online, digital, social media type things, he said the thought process was all about this. How can we consume as much of your time and attention as possible? And I read that quote and I was like, well, I'm not shocked by that, but I don't know if I've fully engaged with what it's saying. And as I said before, have I actually really thought about what effect that is having more and more to my ability to pause and stop and be aware of God in my life? Now, let me just be really, really clear what I am and not saying here. I'm not really talking about whether we should or shouldn't you know, engage in the digital world. Like most of us, I use my phone, Netflix, the internet a lot. I think they are good, enjoyable, useful things. 
what I'm offering us this morning as a challenge is, do we, are we aware enough of the influence these are having on our discipleship to Jesus? And our ability to attend to God even when we want to. Because even though as well as our digital world becoming intentionally addictive to our attention, we also experience in life a whole range of other things that demand our time. Whether it's difficult and demanding work, whether it's family life, whether it's the never-ending life admin. Um... Catholic uh, writer Ronald Rollheiser, who writes beautifully on the Christian spiritual life, he sums up the situation like this. Today, a number of historical circumstances are blindly flowing together and accidentally conspiring to produce a climate within which it is difficult not just to think about God or pray, but simply to have any interior depth whatsoever. It's not that we have anything against God, depth, or spirit. We would like these. And this is the the killer line. We are just habitually too preoccupied to have any of these show up on our radar screens. And I think the summary is this. None of these things make God less present to our lives. But all of these things make us less present to God. And therefore, I think we have a choice. God has made, as we've seen, all the moves he possibly could to show, I am with you. I want to be with you. What are you going to do about that? Are you going to come and be with me? And when things get in the way, which they will, what are you going to do about that? Are you going to push through? Are you going to find ways to um, overcome some of those temptations and those, those risks? So how do we respond? How can we respond? So how do we grow the with God life? As I said before, the good news um, is that this is not a wholly new concept. I do think we have a unique set of challenges right now with the the addictive nature of many of the things uh, in our lives But throughout history, a lot of Christians of all sorts of traditions have grappled this. How do we engage with God? To put it in Jesus' own language, how do we abide in him? What does that look like practically day to day? And the simple answer is explicit and intentional counter-cultural practices. Again, reflecting on the same issue, uh, Christian author Catherine Percy wrote this, which I liked. If we are worshippers of God, disciples of Christ and members of the church, we are going to have to intentionally intentionally redirect our attention. We need to relearn a capacity to dwell, to tabernacle in God's presence. We need to cultivate the sort of resilient solitude immune to the temptation to check for notifications. It's true. Um, earlier in the year, um, I had dinner with a friend, and she told me a story, and I banked it for a sermon, and here it goes, okay? I told her at the time, so I have copyright, it's okay. So she told me, um, I want to wander, but I'm not allowed to. Um, she told me, uh, she's an amazing person, her name's Christina, she's not listening, but just in case. Um, she decided to go in what's called a 
floating <laughs> sensory deprivation tank. Um, I don't know what one of these is, but apparently it's a pitch black, light proof, soundproof environment where you um, float in a salted water heated to the same temperature as your skin for an hour. Yeah, I was like, oh gosh, that sounds horrific. Um, and so my friend told me the story and she said, um, it started off very strange and her mind was racing and it was all very weird and struggling to adapt to the lack of any, literally no stimulation, no physical stimulation. Um, and she said after a while, she, she got used to it. Um, but then at some point she started hearing a water drip and she thought, oh no, like I have got the one tank with a little drip and I have to lie here in Chinese water torture. And then she realized, oh, that's not a drip. That's my heartbeat. I was like, bank on that story. <laughs> and I just thought, I, I don't think there could be a better picture. I mean, obviously, it's an extreme version. But I don't think it would be a more beautiful picture of what it actually looks like and the net result of taking ourselves away for a time for all, from all of this stimulation. The gospel accounts record multiple times um, when Jesus, in his life on earth, withdrew from people, including his disciples and his closest friends, to be alone. But it wasn't actually to be alone. Um, this wasn't Jesus being an introvert. I'm a card-carrying introvert. But it was to give his full attention to the presence of the Father. And I wonder if you could... We could say that what was happening is he entered a sensory deprivation tank to fully attend to his heartbeat. And that is therefore the basic, powerful, beautiful model of what it looks like, I think, for us to have some countercultural practices for attending to God in the society and the lives we live in. That's the core of how we grow the with God life. You with me? So, slight gear change. How can we practically do this? I, I was loath to leave you at that point. So I'm going to run through really, really practical things. Um, I am going to resist the temptation to go off script and take too long. So I'll, I'll be very disciplined. But the, the, <laughs> the first one, very simply, is go explore. And what I mean by that is I think um, I'm incredibly grateful for, for, I was brought up a Christian for a lot of things that I, I was taught and, and foundations. But I think it, consciously or otherwise, I was told that there's only one way to engage with God, which is first thing in the morning with your Bible and Bible study notes. And I'm pro those things. I'm not saying those. But I think we all find that, maybe not all of us, most of us find that quite difficult, whether it's the morning thing or just it's difficult to, to read the Bible. And so therefore, probably I was like, it's that or nothing. Um, again, stay on script, stay on script. Um, <laughs> and I think, again, in the last few years of my life, um, I have found so many new resources um, that just blow my mind that there is so much more out there Again, from Christian history, different Christian traditions of different really practical ways. So the, the first really, really simple thing is um, this book, 
It's kind of crazy. That seems like counterintuitive. It's the Spiritual Disciplines Handbook um, by Adele Alba Calhoun. And I'm just going to read you um, a very, very short quote of what, what she says, um, just to, to link us in. And, all, you know, she says in introduction this, spiritual practices simply put us in a place where we can begin to notice God and respond to his word. That's it. There's nothing magic. There's nothing super spiritual. Um, some people call them disciplines. Some people exercises. Some people practices. But, you know, really quickly, I'm, I'm just going to read you through. There's 75 of them in here. Um, I'm not going to read 75. You're pleased to know. But um, some you'll recognize and some you don't. And that's, that's kind of what I want to communicate. But um, it talks about celebration. talks about contemplative prayer talks about the examine it talks about hospitality it talks about journaling it talks about mentoring it talks about liturgical prayer there's so many of these and i would recommend this book um it, it is christmas time so you can pop it on your list if if you're fortunate enough for that um but it's just there's just four pages on each one and this is my just first offer just go explore there is, trust me, so much more out there than you can possibly imagine from um, our kind of brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers in the faith of really practical, helpful ways to engage God's presence. So much more than you would know. Second one, really, really simple. Um, you know, this has really helped me, especially in this, this thinking through and, and kind of what's sometimes called practicing the presence of God. It's just change how we pray, really subtly. So one of them, you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's not a prayer that's wrong, but often in the morning I would pray, God be with me today. Nothing absolutely wrong with that prayer. But the more you say that, the more subtly it tells you, God's over there, please come over here, God. And instead of where I can, I'll pray, God, make me be aware of your presence today. So subtle. But again, over time, um, it just changes um, that mindset of, no, God is going to be with me all day. It's just whether um, I have the time and the space or have a small discipline somewhere to just try and slow down and attend to where he might be. And then thirdly, um, this one's a very personal one, which is why it's a little weird, but I'm going to go with it anyway, is um, what I call prayer beads. These are mine. They're on the screen as well. I can't really go into too much. Like Christian traditions have different names for them. Some of you might know the Catholic tradition call them a rosary. The Eastern Orthodox call them a prayer rope. Um, these are technically called Anglican prayer beads. And the reason why they're so helpful and why I've, you know, it's more of a, a testimony of why I find them so helpful. And I'm just inviting you again to, to explore. Come and ask me afterwards if you would like to know more. But why they're so helpful is that even sometimes it's just so hard to quieten my mind. And having something physical to hold as I pray is just a game change. And just, just really briefly, um, in these versions anyway, it, it's very, you know, theologically designed actually. But there are seven beads in four sections. And each of those seven, you, you, the opportunity is just to pray the same short prayer seven times. That's all it is, as you just slow down and enter into God's presence. Um, and then if you want the, 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 bigger, the bigger beads, there's multiple ways, so there's no right and wrong, um, kind of a, a longer free prayer. So it's kind of seven short prayers, and then this is how I use them anyway, and then a longer prayer, and then seven short prayers. And I just think there are so many days where maybe in the middle of my day, um, I'm struggling, 
and my brain is firing off, and I, I can't slow down. I can't mentally slow down. I can't do anything contemplative. So I just grab hold of them um, and just do seven prayers. And in a moment, when we close the service, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to lead us through. I'm going to pray just through seven, not, not the full, full way. I'm going I'm to use a, a version of a famous prayer called the Jesus Prayer, which I love. But again, a little weird. Some of you, um, honestly, please come and ask me if, if you're interested. But I just wanted to put that out there. Is it, it's just another different way, but it's so helpful. So, so helpful. So I'm going to invite the band, Battersea and Balaam, to, to come up as they prepare to lead us in our response. But let's return to that question I asked at the start. Where is God to you right now? Hopefully you've been reminded that it, is, it was a historical event. Over Christmas, we were be reminded of the amazing historical event of Jesus coming into the world. But being honest, is it a day-to-day reality for you? How are we going to use this Christmas time as we get busy and we have, we hope, amazing time seeing friends and family are we going to get distracted again are we going to be too busy to notice that god is entering is in our lives this morning do you sense an invite to finding new counter-cultural practices for your with god life so i'm just going to invite you to close your eyes if you're comfortable with that And as we're going to close in prayer, I'm just going to lead us with, with my prayer beads through seven repetitions of a version of the Jesus prayer. King Jesus, son of David, may your kingdom come in our lives. King Jesus, son of David, may your kingdom come in our lives. King Jesus, son of David, may your kingdom come in our lives. King Jesus, son of David, may your kingdom come in our lives. King Jesus, son of David, may your kingdom come in our lives. King Jesus, son of David, may your kingdom come in our lives. King Jesus, son of David, may your kingdom come in our lives. Amen.
Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. Tune in next week for another life-giving message from one of our Vineyard 61 speakers.